This is the IBJ podcast for the week of April 24th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. As you might be aware, IBJ unveiled late last week its 40 under 40 class of 2023, featuring dozens of young but accomplished business, community, and not-for-profit leaders who, we suspect, are just getting started. This is the 31st annual edition of one of our most popular features. And indeed, we have reached a point where some of the honorees are younger than the feature itself. The youngest member of this year's class is 29-year-old Joel Kirk. He does not have an MBA or what you would consider to be a traditional business background, but he is every inch an entrepreneur and promoter, and he cut his teeth in one of the toughest markets in the world, New York City. And he has persuaded some of the most experienced philanthropists in central Indiana to back his venture that makes Indiana a conduit for one of New York City's most famous products, Broadway-style musicals. A native of Carmel, Kirk is the founder and CEO of Discovering Broadway, which brings musicals that are still in the developmental stage to central Indiana so the creative teams can work in relative peace and then stage their work here with a combination of local and national talent. For example, the creative team behind the musical version of The Devil Wears Prada rewrote most of the show's script and created several new songs over the course of about a week in Carmel back in 2021. Earlier this year, Discovering Broadway devoted incubation resources to the musical Five Points and staged a concert performance at the Madam Walker Legacy Theater with Tony winner Jesse Mueller and Josh Kaufman, winner of The Voice. In this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast, Kirk discusses his own incubation period in Carmel and then at Ball State University, before moving to New York at the age of 20 and starting a career as a theater director. He also tells the origin story of Discovering Broadway and explains how this one-man show, at least until recently, persuaded producers and creators with international reputations to make Central Indiana their workshop. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Joel Kirk, founder and CEO of Discovering Broadway and a member of IBJ's 40 Under 40 class of 2023. Welcome to IBJ's headquarters. And thanks for making time today. Thank you. Glad to be here, Mason. I'll get right to it. Uh, When did you know you wanted to direct? (laughs) Since I was seven years old. Um, My dad had one of those huge camcorders and we would watch a bunch of movies. And one day I like kind of stole the camera and put it on a tripod, lowered one of the legs and said, let's make a short film about the world being slanted. <laughs> so I rolled one of my brothers across the floor and we threw a bunch of, you know, balls and toys all in one direction and watching it back, it looked like a magic trick. And I loved that idea of make-believe, of storytelling. And we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, the next like five short films I made were all clear, stolen ideas. Like I did a movie called Killer based on Psycho. We did Planet Wars based on Star Wars. You know, they say the beginning of art is imitation. It was pretty obvious with me what I was stealing from, but um, from an early age. And thank goodness my dad didn't mind that I was like destroying his camera. But yeah, that's the other thing about having like, 
a big family. I'm one of four brothers. So like I would just cast them and tell them what to do. And even my mom and dad, I was like, and you're going to be in this too. And then the neighborhood friends and all that. So, yeah. So that was film. But what about theater? When did you get involved in theater? You know, the first piece of theater I ever saw was my brother doing an understudy performance in Greece at Clay Middle School. And it was, understudy, they have understudy in middle school. Yeah, so they, I, I know they. <laughs> well, and it, what's great about that is they have two casts. So they have the understudy cast go on for a different audience, uh, and then okay. yeah, nice. So we were at intermission, and my parents, who I think had already seen it like two nights in a row, were like, "Hey, if you want to come home with us, we're going to leave now." And I said, "I think I want to stay." And so I like in a very corny way say, "I've never left the theater since," and yeah. it's kind of true because the first time you see electric theater. You're like, this is fun. How do I become a part of this? And directing theater didn't come until the end of high school when there were these opportunities when you're a senior in high school, you can direct a one act. And so it's kind of a, let's see what you're made of, you know, crossing your arms. And so I- Was that what you were at Carmel High School? Yeah, I went to Carmel High School. Again, like didn't really get involved in the performing arts aspect until high school. And I was in drama class with Maggie Cassidy and Jim Peterson and uh, Lamont Kusky and then did show choir. And then I totally fell in love with theater. And then when it came to school, we really didn't have any options of where I was going to go to school. My dream was USC. And I remember my parents taking me out to dinner to like kind of put me down in a way <laughs> and be like, uh, we're going to pay for the steak, but uh, we can't afford USC. <laughs> but you're in luck because Ball State has a very good theater and dance program. That's right. And their strong telecommunications program, thanks to David Letterman's philanthropic gifts, uh, allowed me to kind of double major there. And honestly, film school and theater school, you learn a lot about craft and you learn a lot about trial and error, but it's always up to you as like an entrepreneur artist to make the thing. You've got to learn how to fundraise. You've got to learn how to, you know, acquire IP. Like those are just things that like you get a lawyer, you get an accountant, you pick people's brains. But you're right. I, I It was like, let's, let's see if Ball State's a thing. And I went and interviewed with Karen Kessler, who's the head of the theatrical directing program. First question she asked is like, what's your favorite story that's like ever been told? And I was like, Lord of the Rings. The adaptation of these novels to film, the score, they're so cohesive, they're imaginative. And she was like, me too. And so I got the presidential scholarship. So then we could afford Ball State. I I always say I'm very involved right now in philanthropy is my own nonprofit that underwrites opportunities for kids. But I don't think I would have been able to go to college without those kinds of gifts um, from people. So it's a circular uh, thing, generosity. So you got a degree is, was it a degree in both film and theater directing or two degrees? So here's what ended up happening. I was uh, double majoring and then I got an internship in New York during my junior year. And during that three month period, I was going to see a new show that had just opened in 2015 called Hamilton. And I stayed after the show and introduced myself to the writers, not knowing you know, that Lin-Manuel Miranda was gonna be a megastar and that Tommy Kale was gonna be a rock star director. And I learned that if you go to a Broadway show in previews, you can meet everybody. So I then went to 10 shows and had to call up my chair and said, hey, uh, I guess I have to drop one of these majors because I don't have time to finish it, but I would love to get the theater production degree. I also don't know how I can do that staying here. Can my professional credits cancel my, my pedagogical credits? So... I ended up getting one degree and ended up moving to New York before I could drink. 
which was wild. I had no friends. I had to figure out, wait, you know, wait, 19, 20, 20. Yeah. Just about to turn 21. Wait, so you spent your senior year in New York. That's right. So you're in there, you're 20, 21. And what's the plan is to just get assisting, directing, directing credits. I wish I could tell you that I had a plan. I remember <laughs> getting into college and thinking, oh, I'll just figure it out. And I even sat down with my dad once and said, I don't know how people make a living doing this. And all my dad said was, if other people can do it, why can't you? And that's all I needed to hear. And I, I do like say this to all the parents out there, of people who want to go into arts, whatever that means. A balance of support and ignorance is perfect. (laughs) I, I really like, I know a lot of people who are the kids of very famous people and I mourn a little bit for them because their parents know too much. And then they'll admit that there's new things like TikTok and having your own website and, you know, creating your own content and now streaming platforms. And there'll probably be 20 more streaming platforms in the next 10 years. So like, we know what we know and then we don't know what we don't know. So for my parents to just be so supportive and submit to their own ignorance was the perfect ingredients for my own success. But to your, to your point, I started asking a lot of questions when I got into college and I said, how does someone make a living? How can I? So my plan was to assistant director in Chicago and I applied for internships. I remember my, I think it was my freshman year, got turned down by all of them. So then I hit up all the theaters in Indiana and said, I'm a director. I can help fundraise. I want to do Dial M for Murder, and I have a cast. And this small theater up in Carmel said, great, come do it. So it it really taught me producing and the business of theater and recruiting. And like most of producing is just a laptop and an iPhone. It's just connecting to people, managing the thing, and then making sure the art is as meaningful as possible for an audience. And that that meaning turns into dollars. <laughs> um, so yeah, after a while, I didn't even know that I wanted to move to New York, but Karen Kessler told me, intern where you think you want to live, which was so smart because I fell in love with New York immediately. I remember I, I don't think I've told anybody this. So the first day I was there, I was helping move out the person who was in the room that I was then subletting and I was helping her dad and her. And I, you know, once I was done with that and they loaded up the van, they left, I go up to this empty room and just kind of put my hands on my hips. And I'm like, what the hell have I done? <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea how to get to my internship right now. I've never ridden the subway. Like this, is, this was a huge mistake. And then I took a deep breath, you know, got online and just kind of figured it out, but it was, pretty terrifying. But I I do remember I have ADHD. Uh, I'm an extrovert. My mind tends to be scattered and all over the place. And that helps me in the creative world a lot. So I remember feeling like very seen when I first moved to New York. Here's a loud city. It's basically an ADHD city, right? It's extroverted. It's the lights of Times Square, the noise, the honking. Um, and it's kind of all over the place. You can do whatever you want. You can have a drink at the beginning of the day. You can go see a show. You can go get on a canoe. You, I mean, there's just so much opportunity everywhere. And it's just so exciting because you feed off of everyone else's energy. So you're there in the first few years. Real quick, what were you doing? The first couple of years, I was assisting as many people as possible because of my internship. My internship was at a wonderful organization called New Dramatists uh, on 44th between 9th and 10th, which basically meant every year seven playwrights would get the opportunity to incubate their plays there for seven years. 
and they would send a new draft to the staff there. They would cast it for them. They would assign them a director and they would underwrite that process. So I basically got coffee with everybody I met through that internship. And every day there was a different famous director or famous writer or actor that had just been on a sitcom or somebody who looked familiar. And then two months later, it's like, oh, they were on that billboard in Times Square. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of just approached everybody and said, I have no money. I don't have many marketable skills, but I will do whatever you need in your process. And you don't have to pay me. I will work on the weekends to pay my rent. I, I will do whatever it takes. And the minute you realize that I'm not worth free, fire me. And that was an old Hal Prince concept. He worked for Gower Champion and he made him the exact same offer. So again, I, I, I obsess over the people who've come before and the shoulders I stand on and have stolen from them these really good insights. So one thing leads to another. I started assisting full time, getting paid to do that. I started learning how to produce. I raised money, made money on shows that would then you know bring in more than they cost to put up. And I hit up Juilliard, NYU, Fordham, every school, Hunter College, and would assistant direct would teach. I taught classes at FIT for their fashion design students who wanted to go into theater costuming. Just really trying to meet everybody and just see who all was out there. What I didn't realize was that I was actually planting all of these creative seeds. And then 10 years later, I would see that person that I did costume design with be nominated for a Tony Award and then be like, hey, do you want to do the project I'm doing right now? We grew up together. We know each other. So the first two years were really about meet everybody, serve and learn make no money. I think I made $24,000 my first year and then like 30 the next and then 35. And I mean, and I was so happy. That's what's crazy is I I was so happy because all I was doing was getting to do what I loved. So 2019, you do two things. You create Joel Kirk Productions and Discovering Broadway. Now let's talk about Discovering Broadway. Real quick, what is the origin story of Discovering Broadway? What was the was there like an original idea that turned into something else, or did you have this pretty well cooked in your head? It was an original idea that turned into something else, and I actually don't think I've ever gone on the record as telling this story. I realized that on the flight here this morning. Originally, I wanted to launch something called Midwest Arts Festival that I believed Central Indiana would be the best host in the Midwest for, and I was trying to connect theatrical arts fine arts and cinema. And I thought we have Heartland International Film Festival. We have amazing fine arts galleries like the Harrison Center. We have the Palladium and the Hilbert. And I just thought have people come from all over and bring the best. And let's kind of recapture the word Midwest, which some people kind of look down on and be very proud of that and be very proud of who we are and Midwest kindness and hospitality. Crossroads of America is our slogan. So it just felt like it made sense. The reality is I had no real interest (laughs) or business in doing all of that. It was about trying to make my passion for theatrical arts happen with all these other people that I loved. Like I loved Jeff Sparks, who founded Heartland Film Festival. I loved Joanna Taft, founder of the Harrison Center. And they were helping me realize this dream. So it went from Midwest Arts Festival to something called Broadway Festival to then discovering Broadway, which really the pandemic helped me scale down and become honest with what I really was passionate about, which was incubating the future of Broadway shows, which is what I was trying to do in New York. But I hit a wall in 2019 where when you make a living as a director, 
a lot of the times you're actually not choosing the projects or choosing you. A couple times a year you're choosing the projects, but for the most part you're getting offers and if you want to pay the rent, you're going to take a lot of them. The problem is when you're a young director and the New York Times gives you a review, if it's not good, your career kind of ends. And that's the same thing with writers. I've seen some amazing writers get just destroyed by critics. And I often wonder, I don't know if the critics understand the damage they're doing. I believe in criticism, actually. I also believe that opinions are not created equally. But there was a real fear there of saying, even if the show that I create is hated by critics and audiences, I want to do it my way. And I couldn't do that because the process for new work is dictated by so many different things. The unions, how you incubate shows, the nonprofits have the rights to produce them. And I kind of wanted a incubator unlike any other that had a test audience that reflected Broadway. I mean, 65 to 68% of the audiences are tourists. So it's not New Yorkers, but those are the people who give us feedback when we're developing the shows, right? So we're kind of in an echo chamber, not just politically or in our worldview, but in, taste. So how did you guys end up, <clears throat> how did you and Discovery Broadway end up in Carmel in early 2021 with this uh, this nascent production of uh, The Devil Wears Prada? So in 2019, we launched Discovering Broadway at the Indianapolis Arts Garden. We had an incredible advisory board, board of directors, and I was the only staff member at that time. Then the pandemic happened. And I kind of called everyone together and said, I think this is still a great idea. I think New York is going to come back last because we thrive on international tourism. And I think there's a huge opportunity here for the Midwest and other places that my neighbors in New York that are moving out are moving to. So we had just finished like a quarter million dollar fundraise. So I was like, I'm going to furlough, take unemployment. <laughs> And then we're going to find when is the right time to fully come back and start programming shows. I think it was 17 days before we ended up doing the Devil Wears Prada concert that Kevin McCollum, an independent producer who produced Rent and Avenue Q, he's working on The Notebook, an amazing producer in the Heights. He discovered Lin-Manuel Miranda and he called me. I was convinced he had called the wrong person. I was like, surely you meant to call Joel Schumacher, not Joel Kirk. And he said, I need to put up the Devil Wears Prada writing team. I had been talking to Kevin about the program for a couple of years with The Notebook, which I felt like would have done really well here. And Devil Wears Prada was being written by Sir Elton John. There was no idea in my mind that because he's based in the UK, that he wanted to come for a long time and stay in Indiana. I mean, every time he said he was going to do a concert in Indiana, he had to cancel it for very serious reasons, health related. So it just didn't feel like a show I would even ask about. And he was calling me and he said, I got to put him up in 17 days. We'd love to use your program if it's right for this. And I said, I have to ask my board technically, but you can get a soft yes now and I'll give you a firm yes, you know, later. So called together the board and I said, it's going to cost us this. We can put them up. We have to do daily testing. We should have them test before they come out. Yeah, COVID testing. Yeah. COVID testing. Yeah, because February of 2021, if you were 75 and older, you got the first shot. That's how early on we were in the recovery of the pandemic. So there was a lot of terror actually in that process. I also made a deal with Kevin um, to help close on the deal. I said, we will not market or promote or tell anyone that you're here until after and if you have a good time. 
And Kevin is a high-risk gambler. He's sophisticated, but he's a high-risk gambler. And he loved that energy and was like, let's do it. So the second day they were here, I get a call from Kevin around 11.35 at night, which is never a good thing if you're getting a call that late from a producer. And I'm thinking, oh, no, somebody has COVID. And they drove together. They actually didn't fly. They drove masked and this all is, this the way is from the, New York. This is the creative team. This is, this is the, the creative team. This is the writers. Yep. Is Elton John Director. So the UK wasn't letting anyone leave the UK because in February of 2021 was the early, we were starting to discover there was a variant. I don't know if you guys, if yes. anyone listening to this remembers. <laughs> vaguely remember. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and it, that sent chills down everyone's spine because it was like, oh, so a vaccine isn't going to end this. And that was the beginnings of what we now know was Delta. So we Zoomed with Sir Elton John and his husband, David, um, who's big in the fashion world and uh, runs Rocket Entertainment, their um, production company. So we were interfacing all the time with them, but they legally were not allowed to leave. <laughs> so you guys are in, where are you in Carmel? We put them all up in the Hotel Carmichael because that hotel opened in the, I mean, truly in the heart of the pandemic. And it felt like a really neat opportunity to bring a huge amount of attention to that hotel to help out that hotel financially. But not, but not at that time, not only later. <laughs> right, 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 right. You couldn't tell anybody that you were doing it. Right, right, right. So I was able to, t yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. This whole thing was based on the fact that no one would get sick, that they would like the program and that they would then give me permission to right. promote it, which I believed fully well that they, they all would. I, I did know a lot of the artists on the creative team beforehand. Um, Shana Taub is one of the best writers out there and she wrote all the lyrics um, while Elton wrote all the music. So I get a call at 11.35 p.m. And uh, I'm like, oh, no, what is it? Who's sick? And Kevin goes, oh, no, no, no. I just um, I wanted to talk about the next show we bring out. Um, I've got Ever After. I've got Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I've got that. And I was like, this is the best news that I can possibly get. They've only been in Indiana for two days. I don't even know the last time any of them were in Indiana. For many of them, it was their first time. And they were having a ball. And think about it this way. It's the pandemic. They haven't left their apartments in New York or Chicago. They're watching musicals at night together. They're discussing art. It was like bringing people out of a cold, long winter and throwing them back into their purpose. It was really cool. So what, what is the purpose of getting them all together? What artistic work is happening over the course of those days? The most valuable thing that happens when you put all these artists into a new space where they don't have any local friends is they have nothing to do but focus on the musical, but to ask the hard questions that will take the story to the next level. So before they go to sleep, they're not trying to get on the subway to get home. They're not trying to run to their deli and make sure that they have something. They're not trying to pick up their kids from school. A lot of them had kids and left it with one of the spouse. So they go to sleep thinking, do we have the right opening for this musical? <laughs> have we introduced this character in the right way? So they're working with with one of the drafts. I mean, it could be the seventh yeah. draft or the eighth draft, but they're working with one, but they really need to refine it and get it as stage worthy as they can. Yes. And so this is part of the process, I guess, all the time. Yeah. But in this case, they're doing it in a caramel. Yes. Often, like right now, I'm working on a musical version of Hamlet, and one of the writers uh, is based in Nashville. So she's an hour behind. And every time we get on the phone, the first 10 minutes is about just getting into the conversation. But when you're in isolation for a week or two, and Prada was a nine-day writer's retreat, 
you don't have to start and stop. You go to breakfast together. You then go back to the hotel room together. You go to your own rooms and write. And then if you're inspired, you go and you share together and you end the day together. It's just, honestly, they got about a probably a couple months worth of work done in nine days. And you are Zooming or the team is Zooming with Sir Elton John at the yeah. same time. So and I think some designers. Lyricist well. like, well, what do you think about changing this lyric? Blah blah blah. And he goes, Oh, I think that's okay. So you know what's crazy? Elton John sits down, having not written the song, looks at the completed lyrics, has his whole band, and by the end of the day, has the song. That's the amazing thing about that string of of hit albums in the seventies is yes. that is how they recorded it. Yes, so the, like huge catalog of hits. Most of those songs were written in a day. And they had just brought on a new member to the creative team. So the whole team had not been together yet. And there was That's something... right. This was the first time that they all had been together. Yeah. yeah. And what a special way for them all to meet in the Hoosier state, in the hospitality state, where we take care of them and we make them feel welcome. And they felt that profoundly. I mean, again, two days in, Kevin was like, what's next? And we decided that that would be ever after. Okay. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our conversation with Joel Kirk of Discovering Broadway. What is what is in particular valuable about Carmel? I mean, could this have been done in Overland Park, Kansas? Could this have been done in Tulsa? Yeah. What, what was it simply your connection or is there something in particular about Carmel that is conducive to this kind of activity? When I started discovering Broadway, my claim was that Central Indiana was the best place for it, that it actually wouldn't work in Nashville, it wouldn't work in Idaho, it wouldn't work in California, it wouldn't even work in Manhattan. I stand by that claim. My belief is this. If I tried to do it in Nashville, the identity of Nashville is a singer-songwriter town. It's not that, oh, we, we birthed Broadway. Now, India's identity is not that it births Broadway. However... Crossroads of America, hospitality state, a deep love for arts and culture. And because, frankly, I don't think we have enough arts funding, enough artists here, and enough culture here. And we will, and we're working on it, and we're making advances. There's such a profound appreciation for it when it is great here that that's what makes that 68% of the Broadway audience, people who visit New York, they appreciate it, they love it, they support it. So I still claim that Central Indiana, Marion County and Hamilton County are the best place for discovering Broadway. I don't wanna downplay the role of, uh, of the hotel. And I've, of course, because of COVID, I've forgotten the name of the hotel already. Oh, so we've done a labs in two hotels. Okay. One is the Hotel Carmichael and the other is Bottleworks. I was right. Okay. It's the Hotel Carmichael, named after Hoagie Carmichael. So uh, which, interestingly which has, enough, <laughs> the claim is that it's named after two people, Hoagie Carmichael and Michael Feinstein. 
Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was part <laughs> of the good. partnership because yes. so underneath the hotel is a cabaret space. I think it's the third location of Fine Science Cabaret. The first was Fifty Four Below in New York. The other is out in California. And uh, yeah, so that was a partnership yeah. with the hotel. But the DNA of, of of that place, especially you know the public areas of the space, the common areas, is Broadway. Yes. Because yeah, Fine Science is. Is right there. So th- that's what's funny. If you walk throughout the hotel, you see all of these old Broadway posters and the names of shows that maybe only ran a few months on Broadway. So when we brought the Devil Wears Prada team through the hotel, they were like, is this a set? And did you build it for us? <laughs> yeah. It's not the comfort in. I mean, it really, I mean, this is, that's a very good setting, I would think. And they would feel comfortable immediately. It's a very inspiring space. Chris Kukul, who's a dear friend, Broadway music director. He walked through the first time wearing his backpack. He turned to me and he's like, am I in Vegas? (laughs) And I think that's what's special about hosting people in Indiana is, you know, we drive up Meridian, we take them to Milk Tooth, they walk on the cultural trail, they see the canal, they go to Carmel, they go to Fishers, they go to Zionsville. We take them to all these fun spots and they have no preconceived notions of Indiana. It's like Idaho for me. I've never been, so I don't have any preconceived notions. So everything is a delightful surprise. But I I do want to say... The best thing about bringing people out here is for them to meet the people here, the people who love the arts. We, we do this event where our supporters get to meet the writers the first day they arrive. And because of that interface, the writers feel so loved on and supported that for the whole week or two weeks that they're here writing, they feel that energy underneath them as they write. And that transforms the process. Imagine you're in New York. No one cares that you're in New York. (laughs) No one cares that you're there. If you left New York, most of the New Yorkers wouldn't know you left. If you come here and you're meeting all of these community leaders and heads of companies because they support the arts, that's a different story. And that creates a different process. So it was nine days. And then what did they end up with after nine days? So after nine days, Kate Weatherhead had written an entirely new book, which for those who aren't familiar with musicals and how they come together, there's three roles when it comes to writing. Writing music, writing lyrics, and writing dialogue. We call that book writing. A lot of the times, someone will write the book first, and the songs will be identified out of the dialogue or a moment that feels like it could sing or should be sung. And Kate Weatherhead was brought on after the process had already begun. So she created a whole new book, which in this case, I think was 90 new pages of dialogue in nine days. It's wild. But Kate Weatherhead's a comedic genius. She's a machine. And new songs were written, a new opening. Uh, I think something was cut as well. And, you know, they're going through the show every day. So they're saying, does the first scene have enough conflict Is our protagonist hitting enough walls? Do we know what she wants? Do we take that out of the opening number and put it over here? All of those exciting creative conversations are happening during these writers' retreats. That's amazing that they can can create that much new content that they're happy with in nine days. Yes. It's really, again, I love the title of our company, Discovering Broadway, because you're just here to make discoveries. And sometimes you completely flip a show only to discover that that was the wrong decision. (laughs) And that's an important thing for you to discover under someone else's protection in a safe environment than in front of the New York Times. Yeah, right. So the next show that was brought in just a few months later, Ever After, after. based on the 
Oh, Drew, Drew Barrymore. Barrymore's movie from yeah. 98, 97. Yeah, my mom's favorite movie. So I really did it for mom. And the writers, Marcy Heisler and Zena Goldrich, you're going to love them. And you're going to look them up and you're going to spell it right. Um, <laughs> wrote an amazing score of a show. And it's such a Valentine. It, it, honestly, it harkens back to like the Rodgers and Hammerstein, but with a lot of like modern quips and humor. And that's what's great about the 1998 movie is it's a more empowered Cinderella. And this was during that weird time in the pandemic where we kind of thought it was over. Everybody had had their two shots. You know, the rates of transmission were down. So we went from testing people daily and being masked and socially distanced at the Devil Wears product concert to no masks, no testing, no proof of vaccination. And that was just May of 2021. So let me go back up real quick because you yeah. said concert. So there was a concert at the end of the Prada. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And we were socially distanced. It was honestly, we like hired a photographer for the event. It is the most depressing thing I've ever seen. You just see people with surgical masks on. They're 10 feet apart. Were you like pulling people off the street? I mean, how do you, how do you have the concert without drawing attention to yourself? Yeah. So we, that's a really good question actually. So in raising a quarter million dollars, I had built a network of friends and said, you are invited you cannot tell people you can bring your spouse or a plus one. Please do not tell anyone. Please do not take photos. We have people take their phones and turn them off. Very much like you would do at the Comedy Cellar in New York now. So it was a very small group, a select group, but that also felt like a homecoming in a way because everybody who had helped make the company exist was now finally seeing, after a year of a pandemic and a freeze, the fruits of their generosity. And if we, we look at discovering Broadway like a business, what is what services are you providing? Yeah. And, and how much does it cost you to do that? It's a great question. Discovering Broadway's mission is to offer incubation resources to Broadway artists working on a Broadway-bound show so that local artists can be involved. We can create master classes with those artists while they're in town for local youth. And so who's your audiences participate in seeing a show before it goes to Broadway instead of after. It's all built around this idea of, honestly, tourism and promoting Indiana, economic development. I don't just want the audience for Devil Wears Prada to be people in Indiana. I want people who flock to Chicago to see the new Broadway hit being tried out to flock to central Indiana. Again, we're a convention town. We host things all the time. Indy 500, it makes sense, right? We have the infrastructure for it. And... The economics of that are most of these writers' retreats tend to cost somewhere between $35,000 and $75,000. Now that we do bigger and bigger projects that accommodate and serve more artists and more musicians, and we're doing them in bigger venues that can serve more audience members, that cost is going from you know, $35,000 to $75,000 to $125,000. Then we sell tickets to that event. And so one, the hope is that that either absorbs the whole cost so that you break even, then you have sponsors, then you have donors, you have grant money, foundation money. But the production team isn't paying you to host them? Correct. We actually are offering it to them as a charitable gift. Yes. And so in your organization, I mean, also you have donors, as you yeah. say. And so, and they realize, well, we're helping to bring these guys in and create some art here in Indiana for a week. Yeah, it's one way to think about it is uh, if we were a concert venue, you know, we're hiring all of these artists, right? The irony is the authors don't make any money by coming. They actually lose money because they're not working in the way that you would immediately get money, right? So they still have to pay rent 
at home. They still have to pay for their, their expenses. And we're not giving them any kind of grant. What we are doing is we are accelerating the progress of their show and we are hiring artists to bring it to life. So we, because they've written something that we think is precious and special and should go to Broadway, we want to empower and hire artists both locally and nationally. Okay, so you're a hiring artist yeah. toward the end of the of the process to perform what they've done. Yeah, yeah. And it's often a hybrid between local artists and New York artists. Just as an example, the last show we did at the Madam Walker, a musical called Five Points, half the cast were local actors like Josh Kaufman, David Owens, and... The other half was, you know, Jesse Mueller, who was a Grammy and a Tony and was in Waitress and Beautiful. And the, all the musicians were local. So they're members of the ISO when they're not doing a show or members of the CSO. And again, just by existing, we want to strengthen local arts and culture by creating more opportunities. And you are still largely a one-man show. Are you I, basically still organizing the whole thing yourself? So for... 95% of our existence, I've been a one-man show. And we got to a point where I begged the board to let me hire an assistant. And I think all of them said, I think we've been saying you could hire an assistant for a while. <laughs> you're you're just also making sure that we have the finances in place and you've been the stubborn one. And I, they were right. Um, so one of the best decisions we made was in July of 2022, I brought on Robin Brown, um, who had just graduated out of IU school Um Kelly School of Business, and she had no theater background, which made her perfect for the job because it meant every time we get on a call, we're not doing theater gossip. We're not doing industry knowledge. It's just about how do we make the company better, what needs to be done, and how do we get mm. there? But for example, when you do Five Points, which yeah. which culminated in a, in a, in a big concert at yeah. the Madam Walker Legacy Center, still, it's, it's you and Robin. You're on the phone, I guess, a ton. And you're making arrangements to get the artists in. You're making arrangements to get the musicians in. You're making arrangements with the people who run the space. You're making arrangements with the people who clean the space. You're making arrangements with the, the hotel where everybody is staying. And it's basically you guys doing that. Mason, would you like to come to a board meeting? And uh... <laughs> yeah, 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 can I explain it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's funny. I... Wrote down the job description and it was, you know, run admin, fundraise, donor relations, sponsor relations, venue relations, contracts with artists, housing for artists, transportation for artists. And it goes on and on and on and on, right? We did 10 TV interviews that were all live for the show. You're doing promotion. You're packaging that. Robin is creating all the graphics for the event. We're running that through social media. It is a company that punches above its weight. I will say that about myself. If there's any redeeming quality to me, and who knows if there is, it's we punch above our weight and we really need to be a million dollar company. And right now we are about $350,000, but after- You're talking about your annual budget. Yeah. And it's not, you know, again, we, we've grown our company financially every year, somewhere between 15 and 22%, which is great. I mean, the two of those years was a pandemic and realistically, I don't know anybody <laughs> who in their right mind would be like, let's do a concert at the Madam Walker. 900 people are coming, including the, the mayor and past mayor. And, you know, we're going to work with a Grammy and Tony winner. And we don't have backstage staff. We don't have box office staff. We don't have front of house staff. It's just the CEO and the assistant. And it's going to be a major success. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, that's beginnings, right? That's how something begins. And if anything... I feel like we're coming to the close of the first phase of discovering Broadway, that we now know what it's like to put on 
great art because we've hired great artists doing what they do best in two years of a pandemic and one year, I think we can say post-pandemic um, or at least post-masks in the theater. I think it's now been almost a year since Broadway lifted the mask mandate as an audience in the theater. Um, so I'm excited to see what's next, but um, you're right. We're insane. And let me just make sure. <laughs> Was that what you were getting at? That we're no, crazy? No, not yeah, yet. That's right, no, that's right. no, that's later when I make a judgment. <laughs> you won't be here when I record that part. That's right. That's right. Um, but again, the, the, the revenue sources are uh, whatever production comes out of uh, the creative process, yeah. sponsors, yeah. donors. Am I missing something? Yeah, so it's it's broken down by yeah, what you said, earned income. So any event earned income can be tickets and sponsors and donors or individual people underwriting certain aspects, in-kind donations. Then there is the philanthropic, which is grants, foundations, um, anything that we get from the state, federal. Um, and then board members have contributions and our advisory board members have contributions. So that is a lot to keep track of. Yes, I think we have about 89 contributors in the past year. We just looked back and said, how many do we have compared to the year before? So it's steadily growing, which is wonderful. But yes, it's a lot of individual relationships of people who are very dear to us, who are making this vision happen. And one of the conversations we're having right now as we grow is, um, what do we think the most valuable thing Joel Kirk can be doing is? Is it all of it? And if it is, okay then how do we how does the board support that so can you tell us anything about what the next production here would be that's a great question so we are in a very exciting moment in our growth where all that we've done up until this point is taken shows that to some degree exist and given them incubation resources so we've been incubating and taking them to the next level what we've not done is start a show from ground zero We've never started a show from the ground floor, which as a director producer, and that's what Joel Kirk Productions is all about. We start from the beginning. I build the team. I hire the writers. We, I direct it and take it from phase to phase to phase. Which is what you're primarily doing in New York. That's right. Right. Which that's is, right. It's, <laughs> which it's is a whole joy. other thing. It's a whole, it's a whole other <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I sleep, I do that. And what I want my people to experience next, now that they've experienced incubation, is innovation. Is to say... Let's just talk about ideas. What would make a good musical? Who has not written a musical who should write one? Should we be a commissioning organization as well as an incubating organization? And what does that do to us nationally? What does that do to central Indiana to say, not only is this a launch pad for Broadway, but that whole show was built by a team in Indiana. That's other level. So I'm, I'm honestly, we're in the beta phase of that. And I'm thinking about, is there a Kurt Vonnegut novel that should be turned into a musical? What Indiana story should be a musical? So yeah. sky's the limit if you're commissioning entity. So I'm not actually answering your question, but I am telling you we're in the early stages of saying, maybe we decide what that is. And that's a two-year journey of getting to that next show. Well, you know, as is typical with people who come in for podcasts, there are so many different things that they're working on. We just can't cover all of them. Right. So I'm, right. I'm going to predict that maybe sometime in the next year or so, we're going to bring you back. That would be great. That and be and great. we're going to have something completely new to talk about. So so let's let's just cut it right here. Let's just end the scene. Let's do it. And uh, I'll thank you for, for all your time. And oh uh, I can't wait to find out what the next what the next bit is. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll see you soon. Yeah. Mason, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. My thanks again to Joel Kirk. As I mentioned at the beginning, he is a member of IBJ's 40 Under 40 class of 2023. And you can read 
all 40 profiles in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And if that's not enough, there are a few other stories from the issue that I want to draw to your attention. Most folks agree that the state can play a role in helping educate workers for high-skilled jobs and help employers find the right fits for their workforces. But as Peter Blanchard reports, Indiana legislators have hit some walls as they debate the best ways to do it. Also in this week's issue, Daniel Bradley outlines the plan to build high-end housing for Purdue University's retired alumni right on the school's campus. Now, I will say it is a lot easier to access all of this content and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And you may not know, we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business, and that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. Episode 250 is next week. We'll see you then. Thank you.